This is uh, Joshua Bell with the Kilt and the Cloth, and we are now starting our Hebrew Bible discussion on the book of Esther. So for those of you that are listening, um, it's important to recognize that there's a couple things that's interesting about the, the book of, of Esther. Um, one, that it was probably written between 400 and 300 BCE uh, towards the end of the Persian Empire. It um, One of the reasons that it's so important to the Hebrew culture is as it creates a festival that we know of as Purim. Uh, and honestly, we don't really know when Purim began, but it was made... Um, I don't want to say this inaccurately, but I will say that what you start to see in the Hebrew culture is such a need for it um, in the last, in the 19th and the 20th century during, while people were in the, during the, during the Shoah or what most people call the Holocaust, um, there is a lot of documentation of people celebrating Purim in the, in the, the camps. And so it, it was a really big, important aspect of our culture. Uh, it has, it was, there's a, there's a Greek version. There's a Masoretic version, which is um, Masoretes are our earliest. Well, they're not the earliest. They're, probably the most articulate Hebrew writers. So they start to add, uh, so remember it's, it's all pictographs. So when you look at pictographs, when you look at Hebrew, it's it's like looking at Japanese, right? So there's a symbol that means something that you connect to another symbol that forms words, just like Greek and English. But the difference is, is that in ancient Hebrew, there were no extras so there were no verbs or any of those extra things and so when i say masoretic text they started to add the extras so there's punctuation there so somehow uh we have a masoretic text of some ma major differences and then the and, and it was supposed to be funny um the the idea of purim was supposed to be um an aspect of hebrew humor uh, that there's these people that are supposedly in charge, right? That aren't. That somehow the creator or God will be in throughout all of this stuff. So even when we practice Torah-based things, because that's another thing that we're going to get to here in a second, that all of the human rulers um, have no power over God, the creator. So this is, this is extremely important uh, for us to understand. So there's a there's an ancient midrashic version of it in the Talmud. Um, there's uh, we we find it in Aramaic versions, um, and then there's a whole bunch of midrashic collections that are not necessarily in the Talmud, the Mishnah, Mishnah or what we know as the Tanakh. So uh, because we're in Hebrew again, I, I want to kind of help us and especially the readers understand that when I refer to the Hebrew Bible, it's it's the Hebrew Bible because it's not old to the Hebrew culture. 
it's it's still a part of their life it's still a living breathing document to them um and it's also important to understand that if we're going to talk about it academically the collections of writings that you know of as the old testament are what they call the tanakh and it's just the collection of writings and what we have and what they have are similar they have some extra books just like you have some extra books and so it's interesting because uh, what happens for some reason in the 19th and the 20th century, there became this extreme necessity to say, uh, this is why they're wrong and this is why we're right. Um, there was a <laughs> Martin Luther begins this conversation in the early parts of the Protestant Reformation movement that they uh the Jewish culture that was living in the area around Martin Luther, they, they either needed to be baptized or burn in the fiery pits of hell. I mean, I think those are his exact words. And so from that point on, there has been this, uh, I know I'm just going to be honest and say it. There's this, this prejudice towards the Jewish culture, uh, regardless of, of who they are, but this idea that they're either with us or they're against us. Um, and so in the 19th and the 20th century, it was really important for us to not acknowledge their scholarship. And so one of, one of the things that came to that was, is that, see, this is, this is the old world. This is the new world. And so even the phrase old Testament was designed specifically to say that's, that's not important to the world of scholarship. And so now all of us grew up with this idea. Well, that's the old covenant. And then the new covenant is with Jesus Christ. That's how we were brought up. Now that's, that's a, a gracious way to look at that, but that's not the way that it was designed. So um, so you'll always hear me say Hebrew Bible, not to say that I don't think you saying the Old Testament is prejudiced or racist. It's it's just I try to stay as as always on this this vein of academia in the sense that you'll never have to guess where I'm coming from. That's that's my goal. And so. Again, I just want to say that to the people that are listening, to, to you that are in here, when you hear me talk about this, I'm going to be very careful of how I do it. Because, again, Esther is um, super popular amongst Christians. Uh, I mean, it's it's absolutely awesome. And that's happened again in the 20th century. Can anybody guess why? Women's rights. Women's rights. All of a sudden, now you have a woman who has her own book in the Bible. And what does she do? She helps everyone by just being a woman. Um, interestingly enough, God's voice is not heard in the entire book, uh, which is a huge problem. It's which is why it didn't almost make it into the canon. Isn't that true of Ruth as well? Uh, yes, it is absolutely true of Ruth as well who is also super popular for Christians in the 20th century. Another book written by a woman or, or written about a woman uh, where the voice of God isn't necessarily there, but the actions of the human being are in honor of God. That's the most important part I want you all to hear. So Ruth, Esther are all based on Torah understandings. This is what we do because this is who we are. And this is glorifies God and God's voice doesn't have to be heard if we still continue to glorify God. 
I have one more thing. Um, so the the interesting thing about for me is that the names of the people uh, have a lot of historical uh, understanding, uh, which we'll get into. Um, again, the goal here is is that the Book of Esther is written as a, a moment for humor. Um, and that it's supposed to bring hope in the midst of the captivity that they find themselves in. And this Purim festival that gets created from this idea is supposed to be a festival. It's supposed to, there's, as, uh, as I heard a rabbi say one time, is, is that, and please understand, uh, in most cultures, wine is a part of their culture, right? He said something to the effect of, if at least one person doesn't walk away staggering, we didn't celebrate Purim appropriately. <laughs> you know, so there's a lot of wine in the Purim festival. Um, and, and it's not to take it into excess, right? But just this idea of uh, there's a, in every other culture, with the exception of us, uh, there's there's wine in their ritual, in their festival, and Purim has a lot of wine in it. Um, I got to, to witness a Purim a feast and you you actually act out the characters and that you have props that you put on um and and as you're doing this feast you act out like these other people and at the end everybody's happy but like i said remember there's a lot of wine so everybody was super happy and had a really good time uh, those that drank and those that didn't you know because it's designed for everybody to have a good experience so um but it's real stuff and it's 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 real visceral stuff how do you have fun knowing that someone is going to put your head on a pike and display it in a, in a public place how, how do you how do you elevate that right monty python does uh uh, you know, Mel Brooks does. People twisted this story. Is that very Monty Python? Or oh Brooks yeah, thing? yeah. So this this whole thing is is how do you find humor and hope in the midst of grotesque? Right. This this I I think I said that halfway decent. So yeah, well, I mean, firemen do that. Policemen do. I, yes. Oh, excuse me. Not just men. Police people. Yeah. Um. To to help them deal with the what they see every day they they have yeah they have yeah. to let it out sometimes and it's jokes that probably they only sort of get yeah but it helps them gunner would always say to me that it, the the hardest part about being a sailor outside of being on board ship was knowing exactly what to say because when you're on board ship you're all struggling to survive on a daily basis and then you come back into the real world right you know uh, so this is this is the nature of how Esther is being written. Um, okay, Robert, I know you're chomping. <clears throat> you opened up for a question I had. Now I'm not sure I want to ask it. Okay. <laughs> but I will. <laughs> this <clears throat> Esther is going to be somewhat of a historical story. I mean, they have names, they have dates. Um, I guess, and but you mentioned that God doesn't uh, isn't in this book other than them following Torah. Ultimately, my question is, do you consider all of the Old Testament uh, 
uh, some of the Old Testament simply stories. If, I think the right word would be midrash. If I'm not, yeah, I don't want to go the wrong direction. But things that may not be real, other than what they're trying to convey. This is the way you should. I like should that answer. Proceed. I mean, yes. not not that these two people actually did this, but because of the world we're in today, if you follow Torah, this is what you should do, and you'll be rewarded by God because of. That's correct. Yeah, that's a it's a really important distinction to make here. I would argue that if you ask any Jewish person, did these people actually exist? They would say we don't care. It doesn't matter to the story. It doesn't matter to the story. They don't have to believe that Jonah was a real person. The story is what's important. What did what did Jonah ultimately do wrong? And the only reason I'm asking is because to me the New Testament is just the opposite of that. That's correct. These people have to exist. That's correct. I mean, and for us especially, especially for Christians in the the 19th and the 20th century. We have to know that Jesus was a real person, that Andrew, Peter, James, and John, they were real people. For some reason, one of the interesting things that changes is, is that for the Hebrew world, the story was never about this person actually existed. It was always about, let me tell you a story about how your faith is supposed to work. Does that sound familiar? Kind of like what Jesus does with parables. You know, that's that's exactly what the Hebrew Bible is. So for them, even Esther didn't have to exist, but the way that she lived her life did. The what happens, what you should be doing, using your words, is this. Is there archaeological evidence or proof of that key existing? Yeah, so yes and no. Um, some, some want to say um, that... King Ahasuerus, which we're going to read about here in a minute, most likely was King Xerxes of the Persian Empire, um, just just because of the Hebrew connection there. Um, and, and it's okay if you did because you know we have George Washington chopping down the cherry tree. And exactly, that never happened. Right, it's a story that we tell about George Washington, and so George Washington existed, but that story didn't, didn't happen. Right. Right. That and 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 this and this so there's the the F okay, so since since we opened this can of worms, we, we have to talk about it. Right? <laughs> there's the difference between myth, fable, and story or legend. Right? The mythos of who we are is as we believe in Christianity. It's it's our understanding of belief. It's our myth, right? Fable is the story of telling you how and what you could be doing. Think Aesop. Uh, these these are life lessons, right? The legend is uh, the stuff that happens outside of what we believe, the stories that we've told, and the legend of uh, Jesus doing these things um, surpasses what we believe, the fables that he taught us, and the legend then continues on beyond his existence. So Esther, perfect example, we want him to be connected to Xerxes. Well, because he was in charge of the Persian Empire. He had enslaved the people that were a diasporic unit, by the way. They were they were not people that were in Jerusalem. So Xerxes has completely taken over that area. 
And so for us as Christians, we, we spent a long time trying to figure out where, where this took place. So Xerxes is the one that we connected to. Um, and just for those that are reading and for those of you that are in this room, this is a phenomenal book for women in the Hebrew Bible as well as in Scripture. It's called Women in Scripture, a dictionary of named and unnamed women in the Hebrew Bible, the apocryphal, deuterocanonical books, and the New Testament. And why is it so important for your culture? Well, Carol Myers uh, is a female uh, scholar, which looks at it specifically from a feminist lens. And uh, Tony Craven is the, the Hebrew Bible scholar, uh, female Hebrew Bible scholar. Like they all go to her next to Dr. Walter Brueggemann. So, and then uh, Ross Kramer becomes a part of the editing process. And so uh, this is a great book for any of you um, for studying. It's called Women in Scripture um, by Myers, Craven, and Kramer. It's a, it's a really, really good book. And it just literally pulls all this stuff out like we were just talking about. So um, one of the things that says Jewish identity seems to primarily be ethnic, not religious. It is Esther who that makes her Jewish rather than what she practices or believes. This indicates that the audience of the book was primarily in the diaspora where certain religious practices such as worship in the temple were simply just not possible which is the part that I wanted you all to catch from this, which is why it makes it weird. You can't have a religious practice if you're not in the temple, but they do. How do you do that? Well, Esther gives us ideas. Uh, Jewish ethnic identity was in danger of disappearing. Uh, the book of Esther shows that this does not have to happen. In fact, Jews can thrive as Jews, although the danger they may live in is also clearly acknowledged. She serves as a positive role model for Jewish women and men living in the diaspora, both in the time the book was written and down through the centuries to the present day. Um, so, again, we we tend to romanticize her, the book, because it's awesome and it's okay um, for our purposes in our discussion. I'm not necessarily going to romanticize it, but at the same time, I don't want you to feel as though I'm saying well, I believe this, and, and me saying, no, no, you're wrong. The, the, I'm just going to stick to what it says in Hebrew is this. I kind of get the feeling that, that Esther's kind of like a, it's kind of like a last-ditch effort. Yes. If it if it works, it's great. If it doesn't work, then yeah, status quo type thing. Yeah, and, and it, it, it on. That's I it. I think it's going to get beyond status quo if it, she doesn't work. <laughs> well, so interestingly enough, if we say that if it was written between 400 and 350 BCE, right? If it's written in that time frame, there's a big movement that happens in 300 BCE that changes the whole wide world. <laughs> I got tickled because it said it had to happen before this because after that, <laughs> it's over. It's over. Hellenism starts in 300. And, and at that point, everything goes from Hebrew to Greek, which is why the Septuagint is so important later on right? Because it comes much later than the Hebrew pipe. So this was written in Hebrew. Then it was written in some really strange Greek before it was solidified in the Septuagint. And then again, the Masoretes were also, coincidentally, in around 350. So, so they're putting all of this stuff together and Esther becomes the melting pot of all of the cultures in one book. So that's why it's such an important book for me as we talk about languages. And you mentioned Xerxes. 
can't get anybody bigger than Xerxes. Oh, yeah, Xerxes, Xerxes was a bad dude. And this Xerxes the first. Diana, it looked like you were going to ask a question. No. I'm... It's okay. Okay. <laughs> I just don't, I don't want to go past it because I, I get excited about this stuff and sometimes I go too far, too far, too fast. Uh, not fast, just too far. Uh, so, any other questions, comments? When you when you were the when you first let's do that. That would be a good thing to talk about. When was the first time you heard about the Book of Esther, and what was your reaction to it? No idea when that was. Difference between hearing about it and actually wasn't it in church education. Difference between hearing about it and actually reading it. Difference between hearing about it and actually reading yeah. about it. And and we did uh, Esther with the Bible school years ago, and so I read it then. So it's been in the last couple of years that I actually read it, knew about it, knew the story, uh, did not recognize all the the funny parts until I read it. But mm -hmm. funny, funny, gross. Yeah, it's funny, grotesque. Yeah. yeah. See if we can name some of the characters. Mordecai. There's Mordecai. Mordecai. It's the dad. Esther. Uncle. Naaman. Haman. Haman. He's the bad guy. He's the bad guy. He's the one that gets Vashti. it in the end. Vashti. Vashti was the other king. The king's name I can't say. Start with an A. Ahasuerus. <laughs> I say Ahasuerus. But <laughs> yeah. Ahasuerus. The same guy. That's right. I'm sorry, I've seen the movie since I read the, the Bible, so it's my brain's warped. And what the, is this movie you guys are talking about? There's a movie called Esther. Is it a recent it's movie? It's fairly, movie? fairly decent. Yeah, it's it's, it's okay. a good movie. Because yeah. the underlying thing there was that she was good and simply stayed good. I mean, that, that's what I remember from it. While everybody else did worldly things, as we tend to do. Well, I mean... It's funny you should say it. Maybe maybe what we do is, is after we read this, we watch the movie just just be good. I know uh, my first, I guess, more awareness of it when I was a, a father and I had my young son uh, at the time when he was growing up in the 90s, there was this thing called Veggie Tales that you would, <laughs> you know, and we had all the videotapes and one of them was about Esther, you know, and he loved watching them and I would watch them too and you know, it would get, I felt like kind of the heart of the story down pretty good about, you know, standing up for what's right and, uh, you know, being brave and that kind of thing. <laughs> I don't remember. But I'm pretty sure in the actual story, there's not many vegetables mentioned. No. <laughs> the squash or something. The result of courage. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I remember when I was like first heard about the book of Esther. Uh it was probably at a church camp. Um and there was I just remember this conversation about embracing your faith in the spite of difficulty i think i think that's how i i was taught it um but it was very very little i mean i grew up christian church disciples of christ so you know 
in our church camps, there was very little about just because she's a woman, you know, it was more because, well, because she's a woman, you know, it was, it was a different, different way to teach it. So, I mean, my grandmother, I, I know she talks about Esther, uh, who's 95 now and grandmother talks about Esther in the sense of, yeah, she's, she's really important. However, I really like the Mary Magdalene story, you know, she's, and, and she just automatically, <clears throat> she automatically goes there because Esther for her was, that's, that was her whole life. And my grandmother was an ordained clergy before it was cool. You know, it was, she, she served congregations before it was really I mean, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ ordained women in 1888. Her name was Mrs. Babcock. And uh, Miss Babcock was the very first woman to be ordained in that area. And she, when I say that, that was a big deal. That ordained meant she could serve her own congregation. So Esther, for us in the Christian Church, um, was very important as far as women's rights. And 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 there was there was a justification of leading congregations for us very, very early on in the faith movement. Um, and so I say that because I, I, I can hear these stories in my head growing up that this was an important book for us, um, but it was just extra proof um, in a world that said women could not. Our world said women always have been, so why are we arguing it? So I know that sounds really weird and strange but you know when you grow up in this movement you, you you don't you don't see the fact that they're women or men you see the their gifts and callings to ministry esther has this from the very beginning all the way through it it's this is this is who she is and uh she does this out of a sense of call uh, throughout the whole book so well uh we're not gonna be able to read all of chapter one uh, just because we're, we're going to need to stop and talk on a few things, um, but so my my goal we'll we'll see we'll see how how it, how it goes. I because I really want to use for those of you that have this uh, Jewish study Bible, I'm going to use a lot of the commentary uh, for this mainly because if I remember right, yeah, uh, Adele Berlin, who is also. <laughs> who also is one of the great um, uh, Hebrew Bible scholars, wrote, wrote the commentary. So, aka, much smarter than I am. And um, I, I want to use her voice instead of mine when it comes to some of these things. And so I'm trying to pull up some of the Hebrew, if you'll give me just one moment. I'm just going to show everybody what the Veggie Tales Esther okay. video, because that looked like back yeah, in the day. I've got it. I've turned it probably. I, yeah, I think I've got it. That's what my son and I would, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm not sure what Esther is. It's like an onion. <laughs> <laughs> the bowl. So let's just say Xerxes here. But Persia was bought into Egypt's run of pharaohs. Say that again. Persia is what ended Egypt's run of pharaohs. Yes. They still had pharaohs, but they were Persian pharaohs. And then they were Greek pharaohs. Yes. I'm not sure what better she is there. But... Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Persia, Persia ends the, the Egyptian pharaohs. Um, starts a whole different a whole different world of crazy. 
they're big, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, they're huge. Okay, this this translation and I'd be using Yeah. They're yeah, they did they just full on take it. They're using his name. I'm just all I said about Xerxes is there's a few of them, but that's a big name if you're gonna attach, if you're gonna tell a story. Yeah, he's as big as you get. And in Greek, it makes sense to put him in that category. So uh, I had to pull it up so I could make sure I say his name correctly. It's Ahas Verowas, which is not how I pronounce it either. Uh, so, Wus, uh, yeah, Ahas So, uh, but we're not going to say that. Ahasueris. So just, I'm going to combine our two. Uh, so here we go. In in the chapter one, verse one, Esther, and we're going to go until probably verse eight and then pause and then uh, talk a little bit. And then we'll go from nine to 22. What translation is that? that... Oh, this is, yeah, this is going to sound a lot different than your NIV or NRSV. Uh, this is the Jewish translation societies. Um, so this is directly from the Masoretic texts. Um, so it's uh, just a sidebar. I got to see this in the Dead Sea Scrolls Museum. Um, it was really, really cool. And it's also that big. <laughs> and so it's like, okay. So anyway. It had good eyes. It had good eyes. Um, it happened in the days of Ahasuerus, that Ahasuerus, who reigned over 127 provinces, from India to Ethiopia, in those days when King Ahasuerus occupied the royal throne in the fortress of Shushan. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all the officials and courtiers, the administration of Persia and Media, uh, Medea, sorry, the nobles and the governors of the provinces in his service for no fewer than 180 days. See, a lot of party. He... Uh, displayed the vast riches of his kingdom and the splendid glory of his majesty. At the end of this period, the king gave a banquet for seven days in the court of the king's palace garden for all the people who lived in the fortress Shushan, high and low alike. There were hangings of white cotton and blue wool caught up by cords of fine linen and purple wool to silver rods and alabaster columns and there were couches of gold and silver on a pavement of marble, alabaster and mother of pearl and mosaics. Royal wine was served in abundance as it befits a king and golden beakers, beakers of varied design. And the rule for the drinking was no restrictions for the king had given orders to every palace steward to comply with each man's wishes. Pause. Uh it says here, Dr. Berlin says, Ahasuerus, usually identified with Xerxes I, although the Septuagint and the Peshitta and the Art read it as Artaxerxes. But this Ahasuerus is a fictional character, a comical figurehead, concerned with the trappings of power, but exercising little of his own. Um, the Persian Empire stretched from uh, the Hindush, the area in the Indus Valley in the modern province of Sindh, and southern Pakistan to Nubia, south of Egypt. And it's described in terms of these in Persian documents. Um, and then it just kind of goes, this king displays his wealth, the institution of the king's table, 
the Persian parties were famous for their wine drinking. Herodotus, uh, who writes uh, that that the Persians decided important issues when they were drunk and then re reconsidered when they were sober <laughs> and vice versa. Uh, Ahasuerus will not have a chance to reconsider. The, the rule for the drinking was no restrictions. The usual drinking practice was not followed. The best explanation is, is the wine normally reserved for the royal law was for the exclusive use of the king and was only served to the guests. The phrase is better that translated, as for drinking according to the rule, no one enforced it. Many commentaries, however, take the phrase, the amount of reference, the amount of wine each man could drink as much or as little as he liked. Party animal. Party animal. But look, look at the grand wealth. Everybody. Yeah, that's right. I mean, or at least everybody within the city. That's right. Everybody within the within the fortress he even uses that word. The like there's this fortress, Yushan, this this humongous building. Everybody's welcome to be there and everybody gets to drink and party and have a good time. Low and high alike. Because that's that's how that's how awesome he is. Yeah. Mr. Bin Iran, Iraq. Um yeah. Somewhere. Yeah. But I know that they didn't use the same calendar, but we're, we're talking almost a half a year. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a long time. It's a big party. Well, it's like a hundred and eighty-seven days because they go hundred and eighty days and then another or time, another seven days. So that's oh I see. Yeah. That's a long time. That's a lot of drinking. If you want to. So so think about yeah, that's right. If you want to think about it if you're looking at it from a Jewish lens, what is the one thing that you cannot do? In the aspect of dietary or drinking in any way, shape, or form. Not supposed to get drunk. Not supposed to get drunk. And you're not supposed to eat in yes, excess. Sir. Yeah. So right off the bat, the author has put this in the category of this Ahasuerus. He's obviously not one of us. Okay. Look at how exact excess he throws. You look at all of the the way he throws away all of the things that maybe maybe God has given to him. You know, maybe Yahweh is giving it to them this way, and yet he squanders it. But look at the appeal. Sure, I mean, I'm just saying. Yeah, <laughs> for 180 days we can have whatever we want. Right. So you and, and we can choose whether we. Ding 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 ding. So we could either participate in that or not. So right off the bat, there's a there's a a morality that's being set up. Brilliant, brilliant genre like writing. If this is written in that time frame, you, you you want to think that the goal then becomes from the Hebrew Bible. The Tanakh is the idea that there's this. How do we live in a world that lives in excess? In that is bad but he told us about the Purim oh no but the Purim is just it, it, it literally they say cheap wine is good like it they, they do not it, when I say excess it's just this feast that takes place making fun of of aha suris so it's it's a it's supposed to be it, obviously we're not Jewish you know so I might have a little Jewish in me because when I think about having a party for 180 days and then seven days after that, even more. I mean, 
I just want to, you know, go to bed early and, right. you know, <laughs> that does not appeal to me as a, as right. a, as a life experience to have to do that for 180 days. Yeah. So, so it's, 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 it's exacerbated on purpose. I'm almost imagining in my mind when you read or you see documentaries about rock stars in the mm-hmm. 70s or 80s that just lived these over the top lives with riches and you know there were no rules basically you right. could you could smoke whatever you want take whatever you want do whatever you want with whoever you wanted to do with you know and just lawlessness yeah so you just you literally sum- summarized that for them so this is this is what that guy's doing it's the seventh day after the 180, or is it the seventh day of the 180? So that's how I would It says when these days were over. We gave a banquet lasting seven days. Yep. However, it doesn't say that they drank and feasted during the whole 180 days. He says he displayed the vast well, wealth of his yeah. kingdom. So it's like opening it up like a museum for 180 days. So... You wouldn't have to be drinking. That wouldn't have done say anything about yeah. drinking. Maybe you're just looking at all those time. jars of wine for 180 days and then the mm-hmm. last seven days. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, just over the top wealth, prosperity, and um showing off, I guess. At the time. Yeah. So is there anything to the seven days? Oh yeah, big time. But we haven't got there yet. Okay. It's Sorry. Yeah. It's all right. Seven, I haven't even read that. I just said at the end of this this period, the king gave a banquet for seven days in the court of the king's palace. The part that's going to be crazy is on the seventh day, which is in verse 10. We haven't got there. We stopped at verse eight. This would be um, kind of parallel to Bacchus in Greek and Roman. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, there had been a party drinking and party and eating yeah. exists. Yeah. And that and I think I think we get that I I think um Herodotus brings that up in his antiquities as he's talking about that. But um but yeah, there's definitely a connection there. So as we move forward, Queen Vashti, mm-hmm. she's number one, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's let's do that and we're gonna in charge. Yeah, we're gonna definitely stop at verse 15. Uh, for today. So I'm going to read this and we'll have a little bit of discussion. So in addition, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for women in the royal palace of King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the king was merry with wine, this is very important, he ordered Mechumen, Besetha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs, in attendance on King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing a royal diadem to display her beauty to the people and the officials. And she was a beautiful woman. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command conveyed by the eunuchs. The king was greatly incensed and his in his fury burned within him. Then the king consulted sages learned in procedure, for it was the royal practice to turn to all who were versed in law and precedent. His closest advisors were Karshenas, Chethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys were, uh, oh yeah, Marsena and Memukhan, the seven ministers of Persia and Medea, who had access to the royal presence and occupied the first place in the kingdom. What, he asked, shall be done according to the law to Queen Vashti for failing 
to obey the command of King Ahasuerus conveyed by the eunuchs. Um, so we're going to pause right there. Uh, the Dr. Berlin wants us to understand that most of these names are probably fake. It's supposed to be a tongue twister. So think of you have this festival and there's supposedly drinking taking place and you're supposed to re recite these names sober. Like that's the idea. So as you're saying this names and you're going, oh my gosh, I can't say it. Well, do it again. And, and you know, and try it again. Uh, take another drink. That's right. That's literally <laughs> yeah, how it's it like a drinking game. Every time you yes. get it wrong, you take another Yes, that's what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> so just as the king does this, he wishes to display his queen. Uh, just as the royal wine is not reserved exclusively for the king, the king's wife is not kept for eyes alone. Uh, a royal diadem, a mark of belonging to the royal household. Um, and and then so sh she tries to protect her own honor and her drunken husbands. Notice what she's supposed to be walking out in. Just that, just a crown. What? Yeah, that's that's the that was on purpose when it says. I want to display her wearing the royal diadem. It would say, and fine clothes. It doesn't say that on purpose. So he wanted to display her naked. And notice how that they set it up. She was really beautiful. She, you know, all of this stuff. And so in some aspect, I, I love how Dr. Berlin does this. Vashti tries to save her dumb, dumb, drunk husband. That's that's really what happens. And I remember my Hebrew Bible professor pointing this out, that Vashti is not the bad guy in here, even though she messes it up later. But that Vashti becomes this person that's trying to uphold her husband's idea. Dignity. Dignity. And and uh, he and, 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 and he doesn't do it. So always concerned, right? Ahasuerus consults the law. And um, because... In later Hebrew, it, it means religion, but there, there, there was no religion. So, uh, Ahasuerus is consulting. It's not Torah, right? It's it's their it's Persians Persians law. So they have to be careful how they write this. Hebrew does because when you put law, that literally means Torah, and so for them, they had to be really careful how they put this in here. So we're going to stop there. But I want to have any conversation that you have uh, as hearing this. Has my translation been really different from yours? Some okay, places, though, yeah. It's going to get interesting. Specific words are different, but like crown for diadem. That's... Mm -hmm. Mine, you just have to pull back about three sentences. Yeah. And, and it'll happen within that, but not the not, same words. Not the same words. Citadel <laughs> or fortress. Yeah. Well, I think we'll start. Uh, no, we will start on verse 16 next time. And uh, the eunuchs play an extreme role in this story. And we'll talk more about that culture um, next week as well. Are there any more questions before I stop the recording? Okay.